Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. You're listening to The Silver Stream, a journey through ideas in collaboration with invited guests. I'm Byzantia Harlow, a visual artist and the creator and host of The Silver Stream. Series two focuses on live performance, creating a space for visual artists to air audio works. For today's episode, I'm joined by Bea Bonafini. Bea is an artist who works across painting, drawing, sculpture, ceramics, and textiles. Her work is an excavation of archetypal imagery and emotions reconstructed in hybrid and fragmented form. Intimate or monumental works create spaces where alchemical forms overlap and where ancient and modern references and fluid identities can coexist. Thanks so much for joining me today, Bea. We've known each other for quite a while. we both were at the RCA, but you were the year below me, I think, right? Yeah, that's right. And um, and then we ended up in the same studio at Platform Southwark in the centre of London. And we shared that studio for about a year, which was a pretty special year. It's a pretty special location. And it was, um, that's, yeah, it was a more intimate way to get to know each other's practices. Yeah, it was so nice. We had a very nice... Um, dinner there it was your your idea to have like this series of dinners wasn't it the first one I think you you did was to do with the moon wasn't it sort of this lunar themed dinner but we all kind of invited people we knew and didn't know and had like texts that we read out and it was a very I have like very very happy memories actually of having a studio in platform and like being uh, working alongside you too so it's really great that you've come on today it should have happened probably ages ago <laughs> maybe you want to uh let people know about your practice a little bit in your own words before we start sort of like getting into some of the themes that come up in your work more broadly yeah of course so um my my uh my work really spans quite a lot of different languages and materials and um and kind of disciplines and it's something that's always been really close to me but I started off as a painter um and I um I spent a year collaborating with an artist friend of mine and um and we just did performances all the time and it was a way for us to bring painting to life uh, and that um, that need to get away from the traditional aspects of painting or um, kind of the aspects of it that are normally taken for granted, like the square or rectangular form or the textile that, it, that paint is often applied to, those things um, became kind of the center of my attention. So um, uh, I began substituting 
um, I began substituting painting with textiles at the beginning. And at the same time, I, um, I was diagnosed with cancer. I was at, um, at the Slade in my last year. And suddenly I was building up my uh, individual practice from scratch after a year of collaborating full time. And so um, the action of cutting was really, really important. It almost mirrored uh, the actual physical cutting that was happening to my own body through biopsies. Um, so I had lymphoma and there were these lumps that were starting to appear on my neck. Um, and so there was this physical abnormal growth and this the fear of the unknown of what was happening under my skin, which is a recurring aspect of my work that kind of comes up again and again, either in the form of um, uh, yeah abnormal extensions of growth or fragmented bodies. So I often take the take the idea of the body falling apart and then apply it across all the forms in my work so that things are fragmented again and again and then recomposed and I think um, an important aspect of that was or lesson that I learned through that time was to accept the loss of control and to accept the um, the idea of uncertainty about my own body and apply it then to the way I approached making art. I always have this like idea that if artists fully knew why they were making something, would they still make that thing? Because I feel like we're always searching for something just a little bit out of reach, out of grasp. And I'm sure you are, but it's like interesting that you know so well what that element of your practice is about I mean I'm sure there are still some mysterious things that you're uncovering and there is this like other aspect of it that or but it's interesting that you um because I feel like with my work it's like there are things that I know that I'm doing but there's also something that I don't know why I'm totally doing it and then when I work it out I usually get bored of that thing and then I look I search for something else so it's interesting that you've kind of reconciled yourself with what that is but you still continue to have that in your work but maybe it's because we never like can reconcile ourselves to death the anxiety of the body is I guess still present if that makes sense yeah no absolutely I think it's really important for me to lose um lose control of the a certain path that a work is taking while it's happening and one way that I I managed to do that I think is that I so I start with drawing and I surround myself with loads of drawings but they're not drawings that are replicated perfectly in um, in a textile work, for example, or in a mm -hmm. ceramic, they just become like companions and they surround me in my studio. And then I will work on a more technical drawing, something that I would never show, but it's more, uh, it's more of a guideline for me to start, um, uh, kind of chopping up my materials to begin with. And then everything is much more organic and fluid and I take decisions along the way that I wouldn't have anticipated beforehand. And there's a lot to do with failure there all the time and rules changing. So uh, I guess also one of the reasons why I never, uh, I never kind of stop at any one, one medium is because I just love challenges and materials, different approaches and uh, with materials offer a different kind of, um, uh, just a different kind of sensibility and a different softness and they have uh, such peculiarities and 
Um, and it's such a challenge to, to tame them, to understand what that material needs. And so that's a part of me losing control in a way. And, uh, but often there's, to go back to that quality of the cut, with the cut, there's, it's quite an aggressive and quick and violent action where you're extracting something and you can just throw it away. You know, there's a sense of destruction or of just chopping something up and breaking it apart so quickly. You know, you might have worked for ages on, um, on, a, on a piece of textile and then in, in one second you put your scissors, go through it and it's, all, it's in pieces. <laughs> and I really like that immediacy of destruction, but then the way I piece things back together, it's almost like I take, I'm able to take back some form of control that way. And, um, and patch up the errors, the mistakes, which are and inevitably just end up being part of the work. Yeah, that's super interesting, I think, thinking about like, well, why do artists make the things they make? But also in terms of like drives in general and like how does this tie in for you in terms of maybe the death drive or eroticism or these sorts of like wider concerns I am imagining that these are of interest to you I well just to think about the the oscillation between the two drives of Eros and Thanatos these two Greek gods which is so one symbolizing eroticism and the other one as death they're kind of these opposites that create the driving life force and it's almost like oscillating between those two concepts also in my work represents for me a kind of a will to survive and the sense of um uh of a, of a sort of an, an erotic fight to to get further away from a death anxiety but without obliterating or neglecting the death anxiety and um uh i've i've been reading so much around death anxiety because i think it's you know i've ex- i've experienced it more directly with through uh through illness and indirectly through a lot of kind of family occurrences of illness, but we all have our own version of kind of time running out, of not fulfilling our own life potential, of um, of kind of uh, regrets of things that we didn't do. All of these are kinds of death anxieties which have symptoms in different ways and they can be also like psychosomatic physical occurrences and so on. Um, but um, but yeah, to think about eroticism also, there uh, someone who's written profusely on it is uh, Audrey Lord, and I um, I'd love to to play an excerpt of an amazing um, text she wrote. So it's the uses of the erotic. The erotic is power, and it's a 1978 essay. Um, and uh, yeah, let's play that. The erotic is a resource within each one of us that lies in a very deeply female and spiritual plane. It is firmly rooted in the power of all our unexpressed and unrecognized feelings. It has been made into the confused, the trivial, the psychotic, the pornographic, the plasticized sensation. And for this reason, we have often turned away from the exploration and consideration of the erotic as a source of power and information. We have confused it with the opposite, the pornographic. But pornography is a direct denial of the power of the erotic, for it represents the suppression of all true feeling. Pornography emphasizes sensation without feeling. And the erotic 
is a measure between the beginnings of our sense of self and the chaos and power of our deepest feelings. It is an internal sense of satisfaction to which once we have experienced it, we know we can aspire. The very word erotic comes from the Greek word eros, the personification of love in all its aspects, born of chaos and personifying creative power and harmony. When I speak of the erotic then, I speak of it as an assertion of the life force of all women, of that creative energy empowered, the knowledge and use of which we are now reclaiming in our language, our history, our dancing, our loving, our work, our lives. Another important way in which the erotic connection functions for me is the open and fearless underlining of my capacity for joy. In the way that my body stretches to music, opens into response, hearkening to its deepest rhythms, so every level upon which I sense also opens to the erotically satisfying experience, whether it is dancing, building a bookcase, writing a poem, making love, examining an idea. So an interesting thing um, is that Lord also wrote um, a book called Cancer Journals, and that was two years after um, the uses of the erotic that you just heard. And these are passages from her diary and they they relate to her experience of breast cancer. And she uses words like warrior. She really defined herself as a warrior and, and never as a victim. Um, and she had a mastectomy, but she really embraced her one breast and she wanted to avoid um, denial. And she kind of persisted beyond the kind of the victimization that w sick women receive. Um, and it's something that brings me back to, uh, I mean, the first... Uh, the first kind of similar image or experience I had of cancer was seeing my grandmother's mastectomy as she was getting undressed. And that was always something, she was kind of a mutated human. I still found her so beautiful and it wasn't traumatizing in any way. It was actually quite a light, you know, she never, um, she wasn't shy about uh, changing in front of me. It was just this scar that she wore with pride and she wore these padded bras. But thinking of the cut body, that kind of, that was my first instance of seeing that kind of mutated or cut body. And um, maybe that also influenced um, the way I, I use cut as this uh, expression of, um, of, of anger or something that can be used to change and transform the body. My current show um, that is still on, uh, thanks to the pandemic, it's being extended again and again, um, which is at Operativa Gallery in Rome, uh, and it's called Twin Waves. And that really, uh, that's perhaps the show where the erotic element is most evident. And um, there's a lot of interlocking forms. And uh, one piece, for example, is Sight of Your Sleep. And it's a horizontal piece um, of engraved, uh, it's engraved cork, which has been painted with uh, oil paints. And it's, um, it's showing a night scene in bed. So the piece is kind of carved to, it's at the exact dimensions of a double bed and it's carved. And um, there's, um, there's a hermaphrodite lying in bed with a wolf-like creature and the cuts define all the forms. And as they 
merge into one another, they kind of shatter into a thousand pieces. Um, and you get glimpses of hands with long nails, tickling genitals, um, uh, mouths interact and tongues um, interlocking. And I think, um, I, th I think that's a really strong uh, kind of the physical power that can emerge through um, eroticism is is really important for me and just thinking of some things that Esther Esther Perel uh, talks about and she coined the term of erotic intelligence so thinking of a, a the poetics of sexual language and and her notion that sex isn't a thing you do but it's a space that you enter and she asks questions like where do you go during sex um, and actually to tie it back to to trauma she does something really interesting so, so she went back through in her in her um in her research she goes back to the original and mystical definition of eroticism and she began by working with groups of people who survived from trauma um and these in particular were holocaust survivors and she ended up defining two sort kinds of groups of uh of people there were those who didn't die and there were those who came back to life um, and she defines those who came back to life as um, the people who had understood and used the power of the erotic as an antidote to death. Um, and often I look at a lot of archaeological sites and especially being based in Rome um, at the British School at Rome on re in residency this past year. It was uh, it was such an amazing opportunity to be right next to a lot of um, a lot of sites that had influenced my work in the past years, and in particular there were um, it's the necropolis of the Etruscans in Tarquinia, for example, where you see these incredible images of scenes, uh, very very erotic scenes, not necessarily, but eroticism also plays a part of, in um, in these frescoes, which are beautifully preserved, but. Um, it's uh, it's this celebration of these life forces, which are uh, which instead inhabit a space of death. I often deal with uh, or I, I use as a starting point um, images that have to do with dualism or dichotomy. And I think it starts from, well, first of all, our brain is, is split in two parts. You've got the left and the right hemisphere. And it seems to be like a, a, a really across the board um uh, approach to life as humans to categorize things in two in two categories so male and female and straight or gay or um black or white these these really stark contrasting things of maybe yin and yang and so on but and i really strongly react against that and try to shatter that uh, into a form of kind of a multiplicity um and uh, someone like paul B. Preciado does this really beautifully um, in in his writings. He kind of really reacts against dualism, um, and he says um, that it's it's actually a violence that is generated by a dualist epistemology of the West. Um, this thinking that the entire universe is cut in half and solely in half, and that everything is heads or tails, uh, that we are human or animal, um, and we've been kind of divided by the norm and um 
Yeah, I think that's really powerful and multiplicity is something I I like to play a lot with. Something you're saying there really reminds me actually of a quote from Alan Watts's The Wisdom of Insecurity, which I think was published in 1954, but is still quite like, I'm reading it at the moment, it's like amazing um, and quite like a lot of it is quite relevant, I feel. Um, just in terms of how we're in a very insecure age at the moment, like even more so, and we search for some kind of security within that. Um, Yeah, and this is, the quote is, we shall then have a war between consciousness and nature, between the desire for permanence and the fact of flux. This war must be utterly futile and frustrating, a vicious circle, because it is in conflict between two parts of the same thing. For when we fail to see that our life is change, we set ourselves against ourselves and become like Ouroboros, the misguided snake, who tries to eat his own tail. Ouroboros is the perennial symbol of all vicious circles, of every attempt to split our being asunder and to make one part conquer the other. And I think it's just this idea, isn't it, of like integration and... um, like you say, multiplicity and not like fighting against or like splitting things off and like, yeah, this dualistic kind of like opposing things fighting each other. I don't know. It just reminded me of that. Yeah, absolutely. It makes me think of a work of mine called uh, Rippling, which I installed recently in the south of France. It's a 12 meter tapestry that's vertically um, installed on a on a wall of a building and there's a four meter gap below it. So it doesn't end um, uh, end on, on the ground. Um, it's kind of almost floating and you can rise and descend with a piece. But the reason why I thought about this work is Uh, so it's called rippling um, and it goes back to um, uh, thinking in psychology um, which takes it almost as an immortality uh, project (laughs) so thinking about uh, rippling which refers to the fact that um, each of us create a kind of concentric circles of influence Um, and someone like Irvin Yalom in his book Staring at the Sun which is on death anxiety he talks a, a bit about this and he, he says that the effect that we have on other people is in turn passed on to others, like the ripples in a pond, and uh, until they're no longer visible, but continuing at a nano level. Um, and that's, I think, because I think a lot about um, the afterlife uh, in terms of giving meaning to our, our lives at the moment. This work was, in a way... Um, a form of a form of rippling because one form uh becomes another in a shape-shifting fashion and you can't uh, you can't take in the entire work at once it almost looks like it, like um like proliferating shapes that you can't quite grasp you but you have to really fix one specific spot and then the form or the figure appears uh and because it's such a long vertical piece I wanted it to to talk about the verticality of space so you have the the uh, creatures that populate the skies are then colliding with creatures that populate the seas um also because this location in particular is right on the Mediterranean Sea um and there are angels in the middle uh really at the very epicenter of the work uh, one is black, one is white, but they're just melting into each other. Um, and I think it's always been part of um, part of society historically to invent these hybrid forms in order to 
through imagination to elevate ourselves from an everyday reality which in which um is in any case only only a part of reality because there's a, another part of reality which exists in our minds and to go back to eroticism um the erotic space is actually a place of it's a space for play and it's a place where we can play out the very fantasies that we're enabled to play out in our daily lives and there's a balancing uh esther perel actually talks about this in a really interesting way we kind of counterbalance the way we are in our uh during our the daytime with the way we are at night and so what we're unable to live live out in our daytime or what we actually stand against in the daytime is a, a space um is uh is kind of can be lived out during the night so if you're if you're a very controlling person during the day you could you might have the fantasy to lose control uh, during sex, for example. There's a really nice quote about kind of the dynamic of S&M by Havelock Ellis that I think is kind of, I don't know, it's like touching on something that you're speaking about for me. Um, and it goes like this. It is not cruelty that is sought. It is the joy of being plunged among the waves of that great primitive ocean of emotions which underlies the variegated world of our everyday lives and pain, a pain which, as we have seen, is often deprived so far as possible of cruelty, though sometimes by very thin and feeble devices is merely a channel by which that ocean is reached. So this idea of, like, feeling something... Um, and the putting yourself in someone else's place that happens in a kind of S&M dynamic and just this idea of these kind of paradoxical drives kind of coexisting and wondering why we do the things we do, where we put the things within us, ideas of like shadow elements. Marie-Louise von Franz speaks about this kind of nature of human consciousness to wish to uh, formulate and pin things down in a clear and unambiguous fashion, but by contrast, the unconscious psychic life tending to be fluid and less precise. Um, and I think that you're absolutely right that in the space of the erotic, it is this moment where we can kind of go within and like think about this unconscious and subconscious material and play maybe play in our own kind of psychic shadows in a way that is safe so like the shadow being like a Jungian term for like the Freudian id where it's like everything that is other everything that we don't want or everything that we kind of reject within ourselves in the in norm in like our um consciousness but it still exists within our unconscious and like how do we deal with those issues how do we integrate them and sex and like artworks or dreaming these are places where we can like deal with these unconscious things and like in a safe and playful way as you're saying uh, marie louise von france is like talking about then when you kind of when you're not able to balance the conscious and the unconscious that's when we have like neurosis and that's where as cultures we might have like spiritual crisis and then you know it's just kind of interesting that when we're like not able to integrate all aspects of ourselves then we kind of individually and collectively can get into like this very destructive sort of phase and I feel like artworks are a really good way to deal with our own individual shadows and work out our own kind of psychological stuff and they can be containers for us but then they can also be containers for like wider socio-cultural 
things that or like mirrors for that but then mirrors that can like transform so like fairground mirrors that can make things look thin and skinny or like wide and large but you know what I mean like they have the power to transform rather than just reflect a reality but also they're this kind of safe space where things can be explored and they're kind of boundaryless and um in between state things you know but that have this kind of uh, feeling of everything that's come before and this kind of like rotted down sort of art historical but socio-cultural kind of like material from which flowers can grow from this kind of compost so it's very interesting yeah and I think there are certain uh, like writers and artists and you know this the space for um, poetic imagery is really a way to express uh, all kinds of possibilities and I'd love to read out also something by Alfonso Linges um, regarding these aspects of things collapsing and um, things uh, just the letting go um, related also to eroticism. He, he does it so beautifully with his, uh, with his writing. Um, As our bodies become orgasmic, our posture held oriented for tasks collapses. The diagrams for manipulations and operations dissolve from our legs and hands, which roll about as though dismembered, exposed to the touch and tongue of another, moved by another. Our lips loosen, soften, glisten with saliva, lose the train of sentences. Our throats issue babble, giggling, moans and sighs. Our sense of ourselves, our self-respect shaped in fulfilling a function in the mechanic, and social environment, our dignity maintained in multiple confrontations, collaborations and demands, dissolve. The ego loses its focus as a center of evaluations, decisions and initiatives. Our impulses, our passions are returned to animal irresponsibility. The sighs and moans of another that pulse through our nervous excitability, the spasms of pleasure and torment in contact with the non-frenicile surfaces of our bodies, our cheeks, our bellies, our thighs, irradiate across the substance of our sensitive and vulnerable nakedness. The lion and stallion mane, the hairy bull chest, the hairy monkey armpits, the feline pelt of the mons veneris, the hairy satyr anus, exert a vertiginous attraction. We feel feline and wolfish, foxy and bitchy. The purrings of kittens reverberate in our orgasmic strokings. Our squirrely fingers race up and down the trunk and limbs of another. Our clam vaginas opened. Our erect cobra head penis snakes its way in. Our muscular and vertebrate bodies transubstantiate into ooze, slime, mammalian sweat and reptilian secretions into minute tadpoles and releases of hot, moist breath, nourishing the floating microorganisms of the night air. And this is from his book, Dangerous Emotions. So thinking about what you just read out and how kind of bodily and tactile and um, to do with touch and very visceral imagery, um, like how does this play out in your actual making, this kind of interest for you, um, this kind of tactility and process? Well, I'm, I've always been really drawn by um, by soft materiality. And by that, I mean a kind of a material that has a very sensual and seductive quality about it. And that could be um, 
uh, staining clay, um, you know, layering porcelain and cutting it and then reconfiguring it. But then obviously it gets cooked in the kiln, but um, and it goes hard. But even it through the process of making, it's a soft material. Um, with my kind of carpet tapestries, the soft materiality is is something that you approach. Uh, very much at the end but throughout the process uh, there's a lot of um, it's actually a really stiff material there's a lot of sculptural cutting and um, and joining and so there is that play again of the hardness throughout the making and the softness at the end but that seductive quality of the the fibers when you walk on it or when you feel it with your hands um, and all the fibers are used are, are really different so that some are more silky some are more um some are more shiny some are are stained with oil paints or with pastels so again things are stained um so there's a kind of an intimacy i think that i'm trying to create with the works both uh from a tactile point of view and from an experiential point of view, I think, with the work. So um, my recent body of work, which is uh, in Rome and Twin Waves, is a whole body of, um, that I developed throughout this year and throughout the lockdowns and at the BSR in Rome um, using cork. Uh, so cork is the softest kind of wood that actually doesn't harm the tree when you're when it's extracted. And I carve it and again the cut contains the forms very much like the tapestries um but because they take uh, the they're so much smaller in size they uh, i wanted the intimacy to be more about minute details and uh for them to act as kind of magnets to suck suck the viewer into their more immediate space so that you're you stand up close face to face with it um in order to really understand how it's made i have experienced your work and it is extremely tactile and it does have a sensibility and a sensitivity and a bodily feeling running through all of it even just thinking back to our um dinners we had these dinners at platform that were kind of your initiation where we would all kind of come together, and but you'd made some like cutlery and bowls that we would eat from, remember? And then there, there were like the cups that we would drink from. And I think this was from a previous like body of work that you had done to do with dinners and to do with eating and the body and all of this, but they were very um, kind of interesting objects to eat and drink from that made you think of your own bodiliness and materiality. So as a kind of a parallel, um plane of my work there is writing and there's the food element and one way in which those two converged was for a recent uh, commission for tender touches which is a book that's somewhere between an archive um, of recipes and an artist book uh, with that that was created by open space and um, i'll just read out the first two paragraphs of the text i wrote for it um, that was written during the first lockdown in Italy, uh, which was the first place to experience um, COVID in Europe, which was quite intense. The inundation was exhausting. The overactive mind with its thoughts derailed and its run-down trails of infertile ground, fingers strained from their crazed productivity, nostrils saturated with gaseous filth, the mechanical chewing of mass production pumped and bloated, Dazzled taste buds spitting noisy flaws and ears, 
oh so tired of listening to all the senseless minds and their vomiting, we went into overdrive. So the face locked itself down to feel no longer. It threw the key deep into the mind's recesses, far from reach, for better days to come, ordering throbbing fingertips to press down on all openings. One by one, they obeyed. I think there is something that kind of runs through all of your work, whatever the material is that you're using, that is always making you think about uh, how you feel inwardly and like how you experience and the surface and the gap between the skin and the surface somehow for me like I don't know (laughs) I think that their work is all kind of running into each other and informing each other and there is this kind of strand to it yeah and it makes me think of um of Donna Haraway as well I mean she talks so much of the um, things colliding, forms colliding and uh, and the hybrid figure really and something she says about the figure is that they're not just representations or didactic illustrations um, she says rather they're material semiotic nodes or knots in which diverse bodies and meanings co-shape one another for me figures have always been where the biological and literary or artistic come together with all of the force of lived reality my body itself is just such a figure literally um and i think the this uh image of the knot and of things co-shaping one another is always present in inside the work but very present as a kind of the body of the work and even uh, when I'm making my tapestries I'm extracting forms from one work only to place them in another work so if you were to line them up um, to line up all my works you'd kind of see a lineage uh, of this kind of vocabulary form of forms that is continuing and evolving from one to the next Um, and the knot is another thing that goes back to let's say, if you think of the knot in the throat or this kind of stuck emotion, something that gets, uh, that isn't released properly, emotions that don't come out, that aren't released, which are then internalized in the body and create these, um, uh, kind of these repressed, like this repressed shadow that we were, t- we were talking about earlier. So um, making a lot of the work is about releasing these knots, releasing the nodes, releasing the cancer, releasing the illness, releasing the emotions or the erotic charge. Um, yeah. That's really interesting because for me, like knotting, because obviously I do like ritual spell work and tarot reading as a sort of offshoot to my practice, but also it's part of my practice and like ritualizing and ritual space and sacred space making and Jung's ideas on synchronicity in space and all of these things. But for me, the knot is very much like in witchcraft or spell work. It is definitely this idea of uh, you do like a binding spell where you might not accord and that's a way of like knotting yourself towards someone or folding a piece of paper inwards in order to like bring the intention towards you and like this enfolding being a way of kind of um placing an intention and trying to keep something like you say and then like other spell work where you would then not uh accord with all of your anxieties and then burn through the cord to release so when you're speaking about it it's quite nice because I'm like visualizing it in a kind of ritualized way and it's very true um so I was just thinking as well about like how your use of vocabulary in terms of um, pictorially and sensorily, as you were saying, 
How did that then evolve into like the sound element of your practice, which for me is like a new thing, but I don't know, maybe it has been there for a while in your practice. Yeah, I'd love to play a new sound piece that's actually in the show in Rome in Twin Waves. And it's a disembodied voice. Um, uh, they're recordings of my own voice that have been modified, um, uh, things that are whispered or chanted and multiplied. And um, they envelop an underground space of the gallery, which is a series of, um, of underground crypts. And they surround uh, an installation of porcelain conch shells, which, uh, which you can kind of, uh, they're, they're more abstract than that. They're not necessarily, um, they don't look quite like shells, but they're close enough for you to imagine a kind of a siren holding them up to her mouth and producing those haunting chants through them. Um, and some of them are kind of this, the porcelain is pulled really thin and uh, it's, it was stained and layered so that there's a marbling um, there's a marbling effect that's really in the porcelain. It's not, they're not glazed. And I wanted this disembodied aspect to, to come through, um, which is often part of my other work in more imagery, uh, in the imagery of my other work, the sense of uh, bodies being um, strewn around space or, um, or chairs that are empty or, you know, things, things where you could imagine a body being there, but it isn't. So this kind of absence and um yeah it would be amazing to play it hopefully you can imagine being in this uh in this kind of dark underground space in rome and um and imagine the voice kind of coming from these conch shells so the title of the piece is the sound of twin waves and they are um mostly texts um that i've written or uh excerpts from Poems that were really important to me. We are the twin we waves, are the twin waves, surfing on each other's, other's crest, synchronized, the synchronized transfer of energy, the mirroring, immortal, wrapped around each other, the perfect circle, the tiny grace. We are a circle within a circle. 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 And between us, a cloud of possibilities. Darkness. 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 Where are you? Where are you? Um, 
there's a great quote from The Madness of George W. Bush, a reflection of our collective psychosis, um, which was published in 2006, that I'd like to read. Jung was fond of making an analogy between the formation of symbols in the unconscious and the solidification of crystals in a saturated solution. For example, if we dissolve sugar in a solution of water, the solution will eventually reach a saturation point. If a single grain of sugar is then added to the solution, a crystalline structure will spontaneously appear in the solution. Any moment of self-reflection could be the very grain of sugar, so to speak, that initiates the process. This is true not only individually, but collectively as a species as well. Any one of us recognising the dreamlike nature of our situation, owning our shadow, doing our inner and outer work, and waking up to our true nature might be the very act, the very grain of sugar that initiates a change in the entire universe. I think there's something there to do with like this idea of all being connected by myth and by archetype um, and this idea of, you know, holding a shell to your ear and hearing the ocean in it, even if you're a prairie child who might not have ever heard the waves of the ocean, which is a kind of image that Chris Krause speaks about in Video Green in a book published in 2004. And there's this idea of this kind of... Uh, the imagination having a literacy that is like the ocean and you know water is often a kind of um metaphor for the unconscious and how the object or contact with an object can be a way into these dreams and these stories um and this trigger to this kind of internal collection and how artworks may function as this um trigger to this kind of dreamlike state or this space where things can be transformed it's great to catch up with you you're actually you're in paris at the moment right uh yeah so my year has been completely turned upside down because of covid and i'm in paris um i'm working at a studio complex called push manifesto for another two months then I will go uh, to finish the last three months of my Abbey Scholarship residency at the British School at Rome. Then I will do a final residency for the year at Palazzo Monti in Brescia in the north of Italy. Um, after that, I don't know what will happen. I, I might come back to Paris. That's one, um, one idea that's going through my mind. Thanks so much for joining me today, Bea. I think that's like all we have time for. Oh, Bea, it was so nice to chat and uh, we have so many overlapping interests. So this was perfect. I know, it was great. All right, take care and see you soon. Bye. Bye.